You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. Glad I could join you on a Thursday afternoon. Freer from sunny, beautiful California, light breeze in the air outside with a blue sky, and it's warm because it's summer here now in Southern California. So here on Thursday afternoons at 12 noon Pacific time, we gather together at a time where I just get on my YouTube channel for a live question and answer time. And here's just the idea. I begin with an opening question of my own choosing, usually something that comes into us from uh, email or a Facebook comment or a comment on one of our YouTube videos. And uh, I select one of those and begin that with an opening question. And then we take whatever questions may come into us during the live chat time. We do this for anywhere from 40 to 50 minutes here on a Thursday afternoon. And then, of course, this is available afterwards on our YouTube channel for you or others to watch or forward to other people. So very glad you could join me here today, whether you're watching live or later after the fact. Let me get to the first question that we want to pose to you here. And it comes from Jim. And I'll give a sentence to this question. It's basically in the description here of the video. Was the Apostle Paul a racist? And here's where the question comes from, uh, from a friend of mine, Pastor Jim. He says, I've been reexamining Titus chapter 1 in regard to Paul's quote about the general nature of the Cretans. In light of all the concern regarding race and the church, this seems like an important passage because it contains language that could be considered racist. Your commentary agrees with every other one that I have ever read. Here's my thought. Again, this is from the gentleman presenting the question, uh, Jim, Pastor Jim. He says, here's my thought. Uh, it is possible that what Paul is objecting to is the slanderous nature of what is being said in verse 12 by the rebellious men in verse 10, and that the short statement, this testimony is true, is not an affirmation of the general nature of the Cretans, but an affirmation of the fact that the quote is accurate, but is kind of over the top. Kind of like saying, I know this is hard to believe, but some are actually saying this. It seems as though this passage, re-examined, might be more of a teaching against racially motivated judgment by the religious crowd than an encouragement to straighten out the Cretans. I'd appreciate your thoughts. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your question, and I'll get to this question the very best as I can. Let me just kind of summarize it under the thought, and then we'll go back and take a look at this specific passage. But basically, the question, was Paul a racist? Well, let me begin by saying this very simply. Saul of Tarsus certainly was a racist. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Saul of Tarsus was a racist. Now, one thing we need to understand are the first century tensions. And I don't say for a moment that these were confined to the first century AD. I'm just saying that they were very present in the first century AD. We need to understand the first century tensions between the Jewish race and the Gentile races. Um, in the ancient world, and again, I'm not trying to say for a moment that this is only confined to the ancient world. I'm just bringing it here. In the first century, um, 
generally speaking, of course, there's exceptions. Gentiles hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Gentiles. There was an extreme amount of race hatred between the Jewish people towards the Gentiles and towards the Gentiles towards the Jewish people. Again, I, I wanted to sort of, to use a phrase, bend over backwards to say that this is a generalization. Not every single Jewish person hated every single Gentile. And the same is true. Not every single Gentile hated every Jewish people. But generally speaking, there was a lot of racial animosity between Jews and Gentiles that could be described as race hatred in the first century. Now, Paul or Saul of Tarsus was certainly among that. But here's the thing. Saul of Tarsus repented. God forgave him. And Saul, or maybe I should say Paul, was transformed. Matter of fact, God even made Paul the apostle to the Gentiles in just some of those sort of ironic sort of twists that God loves to do in his word again and again. Now, might I say, this transformation of Paul from a man who in general hated Gentiles to a man who loved Gentiles and became the apostle to the Gentiles, that's the kind of transformation that we need today. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said this in 1957, quote, to return hate for hate does nothing but intensify the existence of evil in the universe. Someone must have sense enough and religion enough to cut off the chain of hate and evil, and this can only be done through love. Moreover, love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of the fight fire with fire method, which you suggest, is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. Physical force can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's enemies. Love is the solution to the race problem. I want you to know I thoroughly agree with that quote from the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I think it's something for us to realize here that love is the answer. God's love worked in the life of the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and trans him, tra transformed him from a man who was once uh, filled with race hatred to a man who loved people of other races. Now, how does this relate to Titus chapter 1 and the specific question that Pastor Jim brought up? Well, this is what we're talking about. In Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and the first part of verse 13, Paul says this. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, the question we have is, was Paul being racist against the Cretans when he said, quoting one of their own prophets or wise men, whatever you would say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul affirmed it by saying, this testimony is true. And what Jim's question centers on is, well, did Paul really mean that? Or did he mean, this is what some people think about the Cretans, 
and uh, their testimony is true. Well, let me say, first of all, and I understand that the distinction I'm about to make uh, might not be meaningful to some people, but I think it's extremely mean meaningful. This was not about race. It was about culture. Th there was no unique race of the Cretans. They were Mediterranean people, just like a lot of Mediterranean people, but there was something of a distinctive uh, Cretan culture. So that'd be the first answer. I'm going to develop that more. This was about culture, not race. And secondly, this was only generally true and not absolutely true. And I would say the Apostle Paul knew it. And for those two reasons, I would say, no, Paul was not a racist. So let me talk about the first part, that this was culture and not race. We need to make an understanding that there's a difference between race and culture. People from different races can adopt the same culture. Culture can transcend race. And the Cretans themselves, the people that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Titus chapter 1, they were not a separate race, but they had their own culture. And I'm going to say something right now that's very unpopular in our modern world, but I think it's true. Not all cultures are the same. They all have different strengths and different weaknesses, but not all cultures are the same. I don't think we can be culturally neutral and say whatever a culture wants to do, that's fine. Listen, when the ancient Canaanites, among others, because this was very common among ancient peoples, aboriginal peoples, if you want to use that phrase, at least in centuries past, it was very common for them to practice human sacrifice and the sacrifice of children in particular. That was their culture, but it was evil. It was wicked. That was bad. So not all cultures are the same. And of course, I used a very extreme example for that one. But that's just to point out that cultures have different strengths and weaknesses. Now, maybe the Cretans were very brave. Maybe they had other virtues that we don't know about. But it was in some sense true that they were liars, that they were given over to the satisfactions of the flesh, and they tended to be somewhat lazy. That would be true of them in general as a culture. Now, again, one can make judgments about a culture and understand that these things are generalizations and not absolutes. We do it all the time. We say, well, Germans are this way. Swedes are that way. Italians are another way and so forth. And again, you might say that those things are generally true as a society as a whole, but you're certainly not saying that they're absolutely true. And again, this leads into my second point. What Paul said about the Cretans was only generally true. If this were absolutely true among the Cretans, then it would have been impossible for Titus to find the kind of qualified men that Paul told him to find in the churches of Crete. The mere fact that Paul told Titus to look for and find qualified men of character among the believers of Crete shows that he knew that this was on general terms true. On general terms. Now, again, only generally true, not absolutely. Paul knew that the people of Crete, whatever their stereotypical weaknesses and faults, that only the people of Crete could be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and that they were in fact being transformed. That's why there were congregations established by Paul and Titus and who knows what other team there on the island of Crete and that that transforming work was continuing. So my, my two basic answers to this is, number one, this is dealing with culture and not race. And number two, Paul recognized that even these things that might be described as being problematic things within a culture, these things can change by the power of Jesus Christ, and that they're only generally true of the people in that culture. Now, the idea that it might be more of a teaching against racially motivated judgment by the religious crowd that my friend Pastor Jim brought up, that has something to it because Paul really did believe in the transforming work that God could do among the people of Crete. That philosopher that Paul quoted, and again, I know it's in my commentary, I can't remember which one it was, that Greek philosopher who said that the Cretans are, what's the phrase there? That they are uh, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That particular philosopher, th there's probably little doubt that he meant that in an absolute sense about the people on Crete that they were irredeemable because of that. We know from the context of Paul's letter to Titus as a whole, that is not what Paul thought at all. You see, however, though, Paul was going to be real about the generally low character of the people of Crete. So Paul wanted to be real. He wanted to be real with Titus, letting him know that he gave him a very difficult work to do, and Paul was not going to wink at the general sins of the culture of the people on the island of Crete. It's a bad thing when we give the sins of our own culture or the sins of another culture a pass. Now, I'm not saying that it's our job to be, okay, well, this is this culture and this is their sin. This, Listen, we should more so mind our own business and think of the sins of our own culture. But we're not doing any favors when we just give a pass to the sins of a culture. But we always have to keep in mind what Paul kept in mind, the transforming power of God. So if you're going to be real about cultural problems, be also real about God's transforming power. And so, Jim, I would say this. You're right. It was not saying they are this bad, avoid them and write them off. No, it was Titus. I have given you a difficult work among a difficult people. But the power of God is greater than these difficult people and this difficult work. That's why I can say uh, that, among many other reasons that we could look at, the Apostle Paul was not a racist. If you want to make a case that Saul of Tarsus, pre-conversion, was a racist, okay, you, we can talk about that, maybe even argue about it. But it's indisputable that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one that gave himself to persuade other people of the love of God, he had that own love of God filling his heart, and we needed to fill our hearts. Okay, great. I hope that's helpful for you. Let me come back now to our side chat window and take a look at whatever questions may have come in. I'll do the best I can with these. First, we have a question from Carmel. It says, I love your question and answer. See Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. Did Pharisees have a regular missions program to find converts? Thanks. Okay, Carmel. Uh, 
all I can give you is what I understand by my knowledge. And this is not something I've done a great deal of research in. So I'm going to give it to you with my knowledge, but I'm certainly willing to be better informed than I am now. But I would say that we really don't have much record, a little bit, but not much record of the Jewish people of Jesus's day, in particular, the Pharisees, doing much to evangelize others. I, I think there's a few references in the ancient literature, but not much. And I think that Jesus either knew something that isn't recorded widely in the rabbinic literature, or he's saying, even the little you do and maybe pat yourself on the back with, um, that you need to realize that that doesn't approve you before God when you haven't set the primary things right. I don't believe that there's much of a record in the literature of the first century of there being a very aggressive program to the uh, Gentile world from the Jewish people. However, I will say this, there was a real open door to the Gentile world from the Jewish people in the first century. I don't think the Pharisees themselves would be so much part of this, but maybe in part, um, and that is the whole phenomenon of what we call the God-fearers of the New Testament. These were Gentiles who were attracted to the God of Israel and the word of God given through Israel and even some of the customs and practices of Israel. However, they were not given over to uh, a full embrace of Judaism, especially of circumcision and completely coming under the Mosaic law. So this phenomenon of the God-fearers in the New Testament gives some indication of some kind of outreach to uh, the Gentile world. We just don't have a lot specifically given to us of the missionary efforts. I think it just is in the back of my mind. I remember reading about a few references, but not that much. So hope that's helpful for you, Carmel. Kelly says, what does the Bible say about dedicating a baby? This seems popular in most churches today. Well, Kelly, that's a very good question. What does the Bible say? I'll tell you honestly, not much. We have a couple examples of, by, of child dedication. For example, we have when um, the parents of uh, Samuel dedicated him uh, that's Elkanah and Hannah, the mother and fa the father and mother of um, Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel. You find them very formally dedicating that child to the womb. We also have the concept of dedicating a child to the womb, especially in terms of the firstborn, in that there was to be some sacrifice or money paid unto God for the birth of the firstborn, and a ritual having to do with presenting a child uh, at the temple for a ritual cleansing and especially for circumcision. These are all kinds of aspects or things that don't exactly point to our modern phenomenon of dedicating children in church services, but at least they point towards them. In the New Testament, we talk, we hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about Paul speaking of some status that the children of a believing parent have. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, he, it's one of those passages where we wish that Paul would have explained himself much more. But by what he does say is he says that in some sense, 
a child is sanctified, that is set apart, regarded as holy by the presence of a believing parent. So that's another aspect. Now, for these reasons, uh, both from some patterns we see in the Old Testament, the status revealed in the New Testament, and the invitation of Jesus that said, let the children come to me, and the delight that Jesus had in blessing the little children. We think it is a good and appropriate thing for people to bring their children before a congregation and in a formal way honor God by saying, Lord, this child belongs to you. Is it a biblical requirement? No, it is not. Let's be clear about that. But I think we have enough patterns of this in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, where you say it is a fine practice. Now, I'm not going to get off into any great depth on this at all today, but I do just want to indicate that I myself, I do not believe in the practice of child or infant baptism. When I say child, I mean small child, before a child. I, I believe that a child should not be baptized until they can make a credible profession of faith for themselves, of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I do not believe in the practice of infant baptism. And I think that it is an important subject to talk about sometime. Maybe we'll get off on that in another time. Uh, but let's move on to the next question. Thank you for that, Kelly. Uh, Karina says, hello, David. Blessings to you and your family. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? What did it mean? When Jesus cursed the fig tree, it was because it had leaves but no fruit. Now, that kind of fig tree, which is interesting because right now I'm looking out my door at a fig tree that's right outside of my door here. That particular kind of fig tree, and I've discussed this with different tour guides in Israel, they make some display of fruit before they begin to bear leaves. Now, uh, these the, the fig tree that Jesus saw had leaves but no fruit. Therefore, it was an example, an illustration of the low spiritual condition of many of the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders among the Jews in Jesus's day. They had a profession that they believed and trusted God and loved God, the leaves, so to speak, but they did not have the fruit. And Jesus, as an example of cursing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in his own day, he cursed the fig tree to be a very vivid illustration and example of this. And I think we can say this, that Jesus only did one particular destructive miracle in his life. Uh, I know we could bring up a couple other things, but let, let's just stick with this. He only did one destructive miracle in his life, and he did that to a tree, not to a human being. So let's be grateful to that. I mean, we, we could think that theoretically Jesus could have been left or right. Okay, you're dead. You're dead. Whatever. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, he could say, Pilate, you're dead. Your life is in my hands. It's not the other way around. But the only destructive miracle that Jesus ever performed was against a tree and not against a person. And it was to illustrate very vividly God's curse upon the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. All right, let me go to the next question. Uh, Jose says, what happens to their salvation, to those who once 
said they were Christians and are now publicly renouncing their faith. Your thoughts, please. Jose, I think that if someone is truly saved, they will endure to the end. That's just how it works. If you're genuinely transformed by Jesus Christ, if you're genuinely born again by God's Spirit, one of the evidences of that will be you will persevere to the end. Now, maybe some of these people who uh, renounce Jesus and say they're no longer Christians, they are deconverting, whatever you want to call it. Um, by the way, I, I think about those who have deconverted in our modern world today. Given this whole thing with the coronavirus, given so many of the tensions and problems in the world, uh, there's part of me that wants to say to the deconversion people, hey, how's that working out for you now? Now, now that you have no hope beyond this life, now that you've renounced the comfort that could be for you in Jesus Christ, now that death is more close to you and more real to you than it was before, how's that working out for you? You see, it's one thing for a person who has a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of uh, recognition, a lot of comforts in this life to say, ah, I don't need God. I can deconvert. But listen, when you're on your deathbed, when the things of life come crashing down upon you, you're going to see that your deconversion was in vain. And prayerfully, you'll repent and you'll come back with a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. So maybe the answer for some of those people, Jose, is that the end story hasn't been written yet. But we just simply know this, that if a person is genuinely saved, they'll persevere to the end. That's just how it is. And so um, you can have a huge argument whether or not the person lost their salvation or whether they had it and lost it. And look, I got my opinions about that, but let me just say that is a purely theoretical argument. The bottom line is we can't see it with our eyes. There's not a light that changes from red to green on his forehead if they're saved or not saved. And so all we can do is look out from the outside and say, he who endures to the end, that one will be saved. So that's the best answer I can give you uh, right now today, Jose. Okay, Fernando asks, Ezekiel 40 to 48 speak heavenly of a temple. Will Christians participate in this future? And why is sacrifice happening? Wasn't the sacrifice that God likes of that worship? Okay, Fernando, you're asking a great question. And this is a question that um, really concerns some people. It doesn't concern me so much. And uh, the best thing I could recommend to you is um, go to my written commentary on Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, especially early in the chapter, because I deal with this in some depth in my commentary, but I can give you just kind of the summary of it. But please, for a more complete explained answer, go. But I, I would simply say this, that the sacrifices in Ezekiel that I believe belong to what we might call a millennial temple those sacrifices are not for the atonement of sin. They are only for the memory of what happened in the past and um, as peace offerings or fellowship offerings, because God accepted those offerings as well. There is none. There can be none. Atonement for sin by animal sacrifice 
after the completely fulfilled sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Period. End of story. So we understand that sacrifices can be made, at least in theory, but they are not for the atonement of sin. They're either done in memory, sort of as a reenactment of historical sacrifices, or they're done as a thank offering, as a dedication offering, but not for the atonement of sin. It's interesting to see that the Apostle Paul himself, as a saved man in the book of Acts, participated in temple rituals and sacrifices, both as a sponsor and as a direct participant, probably having to do with a Nazarite vow. That is in the book of Acts, I'm going to guess what, chapters 22, 23. I I could look it up. But Paul participated in some kind of sacrifices. The same guy who wrote Romans, the same guy who wrote these things that talk about the finality of Jesus's work on the cross. The two don't necessarily contradict each other. Now, look, I, I know other believers have other takes on this, but that's my take. And, and for greater depth, please go to my commentary there on EnduringWord.com and look at it starting there at Ezekiel chapter 40. Okay, next. Um, hello, Agnes. Andrea says, can you explain 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 17? Did God actually lead David into doing something wrong? So 2 Samuel chapter 24, I believe that's the very last chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 24. Well, no. Um, oh, wait. I was looking at 14. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Yes, we're talking about the census of Israel and Judah. And um, I will give you my take on this very quickly, Andrea. Uh, it says here in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 24, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Uh, yes, I think that this was something that God did. Now, God did not violate the will of David in doing this. David also wanted to number the people, but God gave him, I don't know, an extra just, just facility. God allowed it. God opened the door. God had, and he did it because Israel needed discipline of some kind. And this is exactly what happened. God did not cause David to sin. God doesn't do that. But he certainly opened the door, and if you wanted to, uh, gave David an open door to sin, and God allowed it because there was some discipline or chastening that he wanted to bring upon Israel. And so he did it through the census that David offered. So, um, yeah, this was because God wanted to bring his discipline upon Israel, and God working things together did it so that there would be an occasion for the discipline to come. Now, I'm not trying to say that this was the only occasion for the discipline, but this was going to be something that was especially instructive to David and the kingdom. To, to my knowledge, there was never again after this a census of Israel that brought on some kind of discipline from God, to my knowledge. And so this shows us something, that this uh, lesson was learned not only by David, but by all of Israel after this point. 
And so that was a good lesson for them to learn. And God arranged the situations under which they would receive the discipline and learn that lesson. So I don't think we can get around the phrasing there in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 24, although we understand there's a sense in which um, the biblical authors, certainly many times in the scriptures, they simply see God's hand behind everything, as there's room to do in the scriptures as well, of course. Uh, Even when things don't happen by God's active involvement, they certainly happen by God's allowance. God is allowing everything to happen that happens in the world, even if he's not performing it by his active hand. So I hope that's helpful there for you, Andrea. Debbie says, hi, Pastor, love your Q&A sessions. That's wonderful. Now Agnes has a question. She asks, some people say that you can't understand the Bible until you read the Old Testament. Should we start Old or New Testament? Agnes, I would say, um, start with the New Testament. Now, It's true, I don't think you can fully understand the Bible until you fully read the Bible. And so, yes, read the Old Testament, but start with the New Testament. I think it puts you in the proper frame of mind to then read the Old Testament. Start with the New, but then go on and read the Old Testament. You can't understand the Bible in its fullness until you have fully read it. So that's simply how it works there. Okay, uh, Texas Lioness says, does the Bible indicate whether or not prayers are answered for those who are not saved? Would the Lord consider a saved person's prayers over a non-saved? But Texas Lioness, I, I think that's a very interesting question because first of all, you could say that every prayer for salvation comes from an unsaved person. Because if you're unsaved, when you begin the prayer and God grants you salvation, you're saved by the time the prayer is over. So there's a sense in which God hears the prayer of unsaved people, especially when they cry out for salvation. But this is the way I like to give a fuller answer to your question. God can answer the prayers of the ungodly, but he is under no obligation to. There's no promise from God that says he will. But look, there are many occasions on which um, unsaved people have cried out to God, Oh Lord, I'm drowning, save me. Oh God, I'm in debt, rescue me. Oh God, this is going badly, save me. And they're talking about very practical things, not spiritual things. And God has rescued them. God has saved them. And maybe they go on after that to forget God all over again. But I just simply want to say that God is under no obligation, no promise in his word that he will answer the prayers of those who are not made right with him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But he's under no obligation of a promise to do so. But many times in God's mercy, he will do that. Now, that's the first part of the question. The second part is, Will God answer a saved person's prayer over a non-saved person's prayers? Well, I would just say this. We don't know why God answers one person's prayers over, so to speak, another person's prayers. I don't think it's necessarily anything having to do in the prayer, but it just has to do with the will of God. For example, um, there's a woman who's going to get married on a specific day, 
and she prays, oh Lord, don't let it rain on that day. I want it to be a perfect day for my wedding. And then there's a farmer who desperately needs rain for his crops. And he's saying, oh Lord, would you please let it rain on that day? Uh, I need the rain. Now, which one is God going to answer? It's either going to rain or it's not going to rain. Which one is God going to answer? Well, I don't think it, it depends on who's more holy or more godly. It just depends on the greater aspect of God's plan for that particular day, things that we don't necessarily have a knowledge of. It's good for both of them to pray and make their requests known to God, as the Bible tells us to do. But it's also very important and powerful for us just to realize that we pray and then we leave it to God's promise and God's faithfulness. Okay, let me continue on. Um, Gilbert, hey, hello from Bakersfield. Hey, Gilbert. Gil, it's great to hear from you. God bless you. Um, Lupe says, what are your thoughts on 1 Samuel 28 about the distressing spirit upon Saul from the Lord and about Samuel being summoned up out of Abraham's bosom and Saul being saved? Verse 19. Okay, well, wait a minute. The one thing I'm not tracking with you there, Lupe, is Saul being saved. So let me turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel chapter 28, verse 19, where it says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Okay, I understand what you're saying now. Well, okay, I'm going to give you my take on this strange occurrence with the person that's often called the witch of Endor in First Samuel chapter 28. I believe that this was a real appearance of Samuel coming from the world beyond. I believe that God specially sent Samuel in a very unusual kind of thing, a thing that, as far as we know, is not repeated. And the reason why I believe that this was a real appearance of Samuel, because, listen, all kinds of mediums and conjurers and people like this witch of Endor, they fake things all the time. I don't have any doubt that, you know, dozens of times before she would fake some kind of supernatural thing, or maybe she had some true wicked supernatural encounters. I don't know. But the fact that this witch of Endor or the medium of Endor was freaked out when Samuel appeared makes me think that it was Samuel. And the fact that everything that Samuel said was true and that even despite it, Saul did not listen. Now, I don't think there, Loopy, that when it says you'll be with me tomorrow, Samuel said that to Saul, I don't think he meant you'll be with me in Abraham's bosom. I think he meant you'll be with me in the realm of the dead. You're going to be dead, not alive tomorrow. And I can't speak for the eternal salvation of Saul, but I can say he was a tragic man who rejected God again and again and showed no evidence of spiritual life. I think it's possible that Samuel or that Saul rather is either in heaven or hell. I can't tell you one way or another, but I will say this, that I do believe that this was an actual one-off kind of unusual thing where God sent the prophet Samuel to speak to Saul even at this last, to give him a last chance to repent. But Saul didn't take it, tragically. That's my take on that, Lupe. Um, Louis says, uh, can a person who is demon-possessed choose to be delivered? 
Luis, um, I'm not sure. Um, we know that demonic possession in some way affects the will of a person. Um, and so we're just not given a much details as to how much in exactly what ways this. I would generally think that God would give some kind of opportunities for a demon-possessed person to be delivered, but they should never presume. I think if that person rejects those opportunities again and again, they may find themselves in the position where they are no longer able. So I, I just don't think that we have enough data, so to speak, from the scriptures to answer that question. Okay, just a few more questions, and then we'll end for the day here. Um, P. Beyer says, how did fallen angels have sex with earth women when angels are spirit? Okay, what you're talking about is that whole occasion in the book of Genesis, where it says that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men and produced this offspring that are called the Nephilim, the giants. P. Beyer, I just want to say that um, we don't know. Now, there are some people who think, okay, any suggestion of the angelic there is just crazy, that this is just talking about human beings, the line of Seth and the line of Cain, uh, godly people and ungodly people. I disagree with that for a few reasons, but you need to understand that many people perceive it that way. I, I would say that if it was some kind of reproductive arrangement between demonic spirits or fallen angels and human beings. We don't know how that worked, but I think it very well could have been through a unique form of demonic possession. In other words, the actual reproductive um, relations that they had were not with some kind of spiritual being, but with a uh, human being who was uniquely possessed. But really, honestly, that's just a guess. This is another one of the areas in the Bible where we need to be careful with our speculation. I think it's okay to speculate a little bit, but we can't hold a lot of confidence in our speculation because we know that ultimately the Lord knows and we don't, and the Bible just doesn't tell us or give us as much detail as we would like. Okay, as I said, a few more questions. Susan M. says, Pastor Guzik, the Bible says that we should pray and consider we already have it. When praying, should I pray once or continue to ask in prayer? Thank you. Okay, Susan, generally the answer is continue in prayer because Jesus told us to persist in prayer, to, to keep on praying, to be like that widow who made the request of the unjust judge and kept knocking, kept asking. We're, we're, we're to continue in that. I would say unless you feel by a specific guidance from the Holy Spirit, no, you're not to continue in prayer for this. You're just to finish in prayer. I would say generally the answer is persist in prayer, but I recognize that there may be times where the Holy Spirit speaks to a person and just simply says, no, no need more to pray for this. Uh, I will answer. Or perhaps God was saying, no, I won't do it. You know, let's remember from time to time, no is also an answer to prayer. And sometimes it's a very gracious answer from God. All right, a couple more. Danielle says, do you have a series on revelation and prophecy? I wanted to know your views as many people differ in their beliefs. This is historism versus futurism and preterism. Um, Danielle, uh, I don't 
Well, I don't have a recent series. If you go to my website, enduringword.com, go under the audio series and you can see a series of me teaching through the book of Revelation. Now it's old. It's about 20 years old, but it's there. Um, I do also have on my website, enduringword.com, some things having to do with prophecy, especially you want to see the series I do, God's Plan of the Ages, which I think is on the YouTube channel as well. So look that up. The second half of that series has to do with prophecy. I don't know if I deal with your specific question, but I deal with a lot of questions having to do with prophecy. You can find it. Uh, Jane says, why did you skip my question? Well, Jane, I must have just passed it over. Let me look back over here. Jane, I got to say, I don't see a record of your question in my live chat. Could you please post it again? Because it's just not showing up in my chat. So I, I don't know exactly how that works. But Jane, you're uh, asking why is your question not there is there. But I, I don't have your actual question. And uh, let's see. Fernando asks, when people say we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, question, what's the name of the Holy Spirit? Huh. Well, that's kind of a good question there, um, Fernando. I would say this. The name of the triune God is Yahweh. Here's a quick summation of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not saying it explains everything, but a quick summation. And again, Jane, I just want to say I, your question didn't register here on my chat window. So if you want to ask it again, post it, and I'll get to it as my last question today. Um, there is one God. We do not believe in three separate gods. We are not tri-theists who believe in three gods. We believe in one God. There's one God who is somehow presented to us in three persons. That is, there's one God, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That one God has the name Yahweh given to us in the Old Testament. So if there is a name for the Holy Spirit, it's Yahweh. Now, um, that's also the name of the Father. It's also the name of the Son. But again, we can say that is the name of the triune God. Yahweh is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son and is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father and the Holy Spirit and so forth. But there is one God in three persons, and that one God revealed to us is Yahweh. Okay. Uh, okay, Jane, I got your question here. Why is yeast? Um, I can only say that th there's two reasons why yeast is associated with evil in the Old Testament. Number one is because a little bit can corrupt a large mass. Normally, in the Old Testament days, in the ancient world, uh, the way that they would uh, bring yeast into a lump of dough would be a small pinch, like we would do a sourdough starter, a small pinch of dough, and put it in a larger lump of dough, and it would make that yeast spread throughout the whole lump. So the fact that sin, a little bit, can spread throughout or corrupt a whole lot, that's one reason it illustrates sin. And here's the other one is that yeast makes a thing of dough puff up. It, it makes it expand and puff up and, so to speak, get a big head, if you want to say that. Well, pride is sort of the ultimate and the most basic sin, that being puffed up. So for those two reasons, 
um, because it spreads through everything. A little bit corrupts a lot, and it tends to puff up in the sense of making something proud and bigger than it deserves to be. That's why yeast was shown to be an illustration of sin. Um, if there are reasons beyond that, I don't know, but I think that's a good question. Um, but it is for those basic reasons, that's why yeast was given as a picture or presented, I should say, as a picture of sin in the Bible. Okay, let me just scan really quickly. Danielle, you're very welcome. Uh, Peter, thank you. Hey, from Sierra Leone, God bless you. I'm so pleased to have viewers, especially live viewers from Africa. God bless you, Peter. And um, MN says, I'm reading Matthew. I wish you had your commentary and video here on YouTube. Oh, you're welcome. That was only an audio series that I did. You can get my audio series teaching verse by verse through the book of Matthew at EnduringWord.com. There is a very extensive uh, audio library that goes beyond my YouTube library. And um, MN, I don't believe in the but I still study with your commentary. Well, thank you for keep studying. And I, I hope we'll all continue to learn together. All right, folks, that's it for today. God bless you. I am so pleased that you could join me. I'm so pleased that uh, you could just have this time with me and I with you together. Um, remember to click the thumbs up, the likes. Remember to subscribe, all the rest of it, whatever people say. Do it or don't do it. Doesn't really matter to me, but I'm supposed to remind you. And I want to thank everybody who continues to support the work of Enduring Word. It's a great blessing. I feel from God for me to be able to do what I can do and to get this Bible commentary that we have through the entire Bible translated into other languages and available around the world for people absolutely free. That's only possible because people support the work. God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. And I'll talk to you next time. God bless you. And thank you for all the people from Italy all around. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.